1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Mustful, your host today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. William Green, author of the book, The Children of Lincoln, White Paternalism and the Limits of Black Opportunity in Minnesota, 1860 to 1876. Dr. Green, thank you for joining me today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Pleasure to be here. Dr. William Green is professor of history at Augsburg University and vice president of the Minnesota Historical Society. In addition to his newest book, The Children of Lincoln, Green is the author of Degrees of Freedom, The, origin of the, civil rights, the Origins of Civil Rights in Minnesota, 1865-1912, to 1912, winner of the Hognander Minnesota History Award, and A Peculiar Imbalance, The Rise and Fall of Racial Equality in Minnesota, 1837 to 1869. Doctor Green, as we get started, um, I'd like to give you give hope you could give our readers a little bit of perspective. Uh, In your introduction, you stated that before writing this book, you made the mistake of quote superimposing the traits of a 21st century liberal on the liberal of the 19th century, assuming that those in the past shared the present sense of Minnesota exceptionalism, and I was wrong to do that. Unquote. I wonder if you can help uh, your readers avoid this same mistake by putting the actions or inactions of the people you, people you highlight in this book in the context of the time period in which they lived?
2: Uh well I'll try. Um the when when I first looked at the history, um I, I was I was impressed with the lead that Minnesotans took in uh First of all, uh, 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 protecting the Union. Minnesota was the first state to send volunteers into the, into the Army upon uh, Lincoln's call to arms. Minnesota was the first to respond. Uh, Minnesota had all, would also become one of the first states to extend um, Black suffrage um, uh, by vote. By vote. Uh, it would ask the voters of, of Minnesota, uh, who are all white men, uh, in the wake of the Civil War, uh, whether they wanted to extend the right to vote to to blacks and and they did and it was the first state to actually do that um, in in eighteen sixty nine Minnesota uh, also the legislature passed a law that would ban school segregation on the basis of race and uh would would take the next step to uh, have blacks serve on the jury uh, on juries? That is something that it hadn't happened before in the state, and in, in many states in the north. So uh, Minnesota had had reason to feel that it was on the right side of, of, of history. Um, but what happened after 1870 uh, really sort of was 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 very telling of of just how exceptional uh, Minnesotans were. Because in the wake of 1870, after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were, were ratified, uh, throughout the North, um, and the National Party of the Republican Party uh, basically abandoned the African American. And in, in, in the South was the rise of of, of white supremacy. Um, in, in Minnesota, you don't see the rise of white supremacy, uh, and you don't see the same kinds of, 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 of violence being committed against the, the black population. And so when, um, the United States Senator, uh, William, uh, Morton Wilkinson said that we have done our part, I took that to mean that uh, we have done, we meaning the white uh, leadership of the state, uh, the white people of the state had, had done uh, what we morally should do for our black neighbors, um, but that we were there to, to back you up when and if you needed us in the future. That was my assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, what I later came to realize was that uh once the 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 political equality had been established for african americans uh the the general mood of white friends of black people in minnesota was now that we've given you this right you're off on your own to either fall or to succeed on your own Um, and so there was a a different kind of abandonment of of the african-american um with the the establishment of black political rights or uh, black uh, black equality in the political sphere um, there was there was not real much there was not much consideration for whether um, uh, whether blacks should have the same opportunity to purchase farms for example or develop skilled uh trades uh become become skilled laborers or even to succeed in the schools or to live where where they wanted to live there was really not much uh consideration on the part of white friends to to secure those kinds of opportunities and i think even more fundamental than that there was li- very little regard given to whether blacks and whites should even socialize together. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was only uh, the existence of, of of a black of the ballot to the black man that that uh, the friends of Lincoln were most concerned with, and uh, the presumption that once that had been established, then they could pretty much uh, feel that they've done all that they should do for the African American. Um, so that's that 's what I learned uh, right. and you, you learn that from the larger context. you still see the existence of 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 black uh, isolation of Jim Crow laws of discrimination of um, violence that could appear on the streets between um, white men and black men, uh, and that the, the the friends of black people basically kind of said nothing about it. They looked in another direction. That was the kind of reality that I had to get used to. Mm-hmm. So adjusting my eyes to so a much more nuanced, <laughs> subtle form of of race relations was what I had not done and had to learn to do when I began to write that final uh, draft.
1: You mentioned uh, Morton Wilkinson in a statement he made we have done our part. Uh, when when did he say that, and, and how does that relate to this book that you've written?
2: Well, Wilkinson was uh, uh, the first Republican uh, U.S. Senator for the state. He was elected in 1859. His, his tenure would begin in 1860, and it would straddle uh, basically the Civil War. Uh, his term would end in 1865, and and um, he had been a champion of, of African-American equality. He was, a, he, was, he was considered a radical Republican. In my view, he was one of the more radical of radical Republicans. Uh, and we can talk more about that part later on. But the key thing is that he spoke uh, as one of the keynote speakers at the uh, convention celebrating um, the passage of Black suffrage in Minnesota in 1869 this is for the state constitution and he used the phrase we have done our part namely you know we led white voters who may have been apprehensive to support black suffrage we led them to the ballot uh, to the question and persuaded them to to vote for black suffrage and in doing that we've done all that we can and should do to to give you opportunity to to do better so it was within that context when, when he uttered that language. So it occurred once again in 1869.
1: Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Wilkinson. Uh, you mentioned that he was the first to make uh, President Lincoln aware of the outbreak of war with the Dakota in Minnesota in 1862. And he seemed uh, very much opposed to the rights of the Dakota people, yet he was in favor of the rights of blacks and black suffrage can you talk a little bit about about that dichotomy in his thinking
2: yeah that that was uh he pretty much reflected the attitudes of a lot of People like him who supported black emancipation and black political equality, but harbored uh, resentment and, and, and in some cases even hatred of of the Native American. Um, he he was from New York, New York State, and uh, had never really had any kind of actual exposure to Africa. Uh, I'm sorry, to Native Americans until he moved to to Minnesota, uh, and so he brought with him when he when he settled in Minnesota, the sort of uh, romantics uh, notion of the noble savage that he that he got from uh, James Fenimore Cooper's novels and whatnot. And that's not unusual for a number of the liberals who moved to Minnesota in the 1840s and 50s. Um, but in time, <coughs> excuse me, in time, uh he he developed an antipathy for for the natives and it, it, it was sparked principally in eighteen sixty two. Wilkinson had moved to Mankato. Mankato was very much in the midst of that region where the Dakota were at war against the US government and, and, and white farmers. And so and his family was still in Mankato. So he felt especially threatened um, because he came from a state that was identified as a state with a huge Indian population, um, he was he was pretty much appointed to the committees in the Senate that dealt with Indian affairs, and he felt that he was a person who had made sure that the that the interests of Indians were taken care of. He had taken on a fairly paternalistic view of the Indians, uh, so that in eighteen sixty and the Indian system. Uh, which was what the Indian department was was called uh, was was rife with corruption, um, and so a lot of the a lot of the good efforts that I think Wilkinson felt he was committing uh, never was really seen by the Indians who were supposedly in his charge and so when the when the Dakota rose up in eighteen sixty two uh, he had this sense of, of of them being ungrateful for all of his good deeds, and this 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 triggered um, this intense antipathy. Um, first of all, his family was threatened. He felt fearful of their well-being living in Mankato at the time. And also the sense of, uh, of the of the Indians in general and the Dakota in particular being ungrateful for, uh, quote, all the good things that he had done in their behalf. And so he felt that they needed to be punished. And his first uh, interest was in seeing a policy that would institute um, uh, extermination that would that would exterminate the Dakota, and he would later see it as as an opportunity to have the Indians removed, and in doing so, free up all of that valuable land that could be used for homesteading. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could move the Indians out. So 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 Wilkinson, mm-hmm. as a result of his his relationship to Indian policy, sort of transformed, while being on one hand a person who was frustrated with Lincoln for not. Prosecuting the war more aggressively, and for not uh, pushing for emancipation uh, more more urgently, um, and for wanting to see blacks serve in the in the army and wanting to have resources available for the family of slaves who were serving in the army, he was very progressive in that regard. Mm-hmm. From from those stances, he had this very personal sense of of of, of frustration and anger. Uh, for people who he felt had let him down. And so he he could be pro-black on one side and anti-Indian all at the same time. That's not unusual, as I said before. Jane Grey Swishelm, a noted uh, journalist, uh, then living in St. Cloud, was also an abolitionist and uh, uh, very much frustrated that Lincoln was not prosecuting the war to end slavery uh, enough but uh, quickly enough, but she also uh, quickly came to embrace um, the, the call, the, the support for a call to exterminate the Indian, to, to actually create bounties for, for, the, for the killing of, 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 of Dakota. Um, this kind of dichotomy seemed to be very common among um, many of the liberals. Not all political liberals felt this way, but a significant number did. Um, and Wilkinson pretty much gave voice to that.
1: Yeah, I found that very interesting, just how adamant, uh, Wilkinson and the, like, Swisshelm were against the Dakota, uh, meanwhile, fighting for the rights of, uh, free blacks that had just recently been, um, emancipated. Can you talk more about the Dakota war? You, you start the book off, um, focusing, highlighting the U.S.-Dakota war, and I wonder, Why did you choose to include so much of that uh, into the book?
2: Well, um, you know, I I, I thought that the the main purpose of this book was to uh, try to understand uh, what Lincoln Republicans were like in Minnesota. I wanted to try to understand whether um, the sensibilities of Minnesota's Children of Lincoln was similar to that experienced by their brethren in other parts of the North and other parts of the country uh, towards African-Americans. And in getting that sense, I felt like I wanted to uh, get as wide a range as possible of those who identified themselves as Lincoln Republicans. One of the people I selected was a man who was an Irish Protestant uh, immigrant who lived in Le County. Uh, His name was Thomas Montgomery and uh he lived in on a farm at the time the dakota uh began to to fight began to uh, rose up and uh so his story becomes um yet another chapter to me understanding the sensibilities of the of the lincoln republicans of minnesota um, Montgomery was a, uh, would later become a member of, uh, would soon become a member of, of the army that went, that was assigned the task of capturing, defeating and capturing the Dakota. He would be a part of the expeditionary force that, uh, that, that uh, Henry Sibley, uh, led. And, um, in 1863, when uh, and he and by the way, I might uh, I might say that Montgomery was on duty at the time of the of the hangings of the thirty eight Dakota men in Mankato. He was, if you see a depiction, uh, and that's a fairly common. You can find that image of soldiers ringing the the scaffolding where the Dakota men were, were hung. He was one of the soldiers on guard at the time, and he actually writes about it in his letters. Uh, which can be uh, acquired at the historical society. Um, when he when he returned to Fort Snelling, his his unit was deployed to St. Louis, and in St. Louis, he he learned for the first time of the the colored uh, troops, infantry troops, and he also realized that this could be his avenue to becoming an officer and a gentleman, and so he transferred into into that. Uh, into that unit, so he becomes a, a white man leading black troops, and uh, you could see through his letters uh, not only his attitudes and sometimes ambi- ambivalent attitudes towards the Dakota. You could see it and, and compare his attitudes towards towards the Indians with his attitudes of the of the African Americans who he he led. Um, he would at one time be impressed with their determination to fight for their freedom and on the other hand view them as inferiors to himself um so i i think that for the most part uh you know i, I think that his story fleshes out or gives yet another dimension of that lincoln republican sensibility in minnesota um, he would later be uh, supportive of of his troopers purchasing land in southwestern Minnesota, um, but then uh, he, uh, because he learned or realized that that would be a controversial thing in his neighborhood, that a number of the whites who lived in his in his region were not happy about seeing blacks become homesteaders there, he basically let the plan drop. And much later, when he gets out of the army, he becomes a person who began to to, to buy and sell real estate um, to the new homesteaders coming in from the East and from Europe. Um, And he basically does nothing to help his black troopers uh, either move to Minnesota uh, or those who did move to Minnesota purchase land. Um, I saw that as another dimension of of the Lincoln Republican, another source, another form of abandonment of 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 the black charges.
1: Uh, you talked about uh, Thomas Montgomery now and, and earlier uh, about Mort- Morton Wilkinson. There are two other um, whites that you highlight in this book, but before we get to them, uh, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by the children of Lincoln? I know uh, that came from a quote from Frederick Douglass. Uh, why did he say that, and, and why did you choose to, to use that as the title of your novel or book? I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: Well, um, the 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 time well in, in eighteen seventy six, uh, the Emancipation Memorial was was dedicated in Washington D.C. Um, perhaps many of your your listeners are familiar with the the visage of that of that memorial. So it, it, it has Lincoln standing on the on the pedestal uh, with both arms outstretched and at his at his knees. Um, is a is a freedman, a, a freed slave, African American slave, huddled, uh, forever bowed, and even though the chains around his arms have been broken, so that he is free in that regard, he is forever frozen in that posture of subordination. To the emancipator. He will never be able to stand up and face the, the emancipator as an equal to the emancipator. Um, that becomes sort of a, a symbol of how white liberals in the late 19th century viewed the African American. Um, you know, we, we, we freed you, we made you politically equal, but you can never be equal to us in any kind of fundamental way. Um, and, and Frederick Douglass, who was one of the few speakers of the day, uh, to dedicate the monument, gives us very long speech about, um, how great Abraham Lincoln was, and he was, mm-hmm. um, but he also says to the audience, which was largely white, you, he's he's talking to the white audience, were the children of Lincoln. We, referring to African-Americans, were at best his stepchildren. Um, Uh, It's the only time that he makes that kind of reference, but I think in that short phrase, he basically characterizes the nature of race relations, the nature of the relationship between whites and blacks, but not just whites and blacks, white friends of black people and black people, uh, that kind of story. Strange and unique form of paternalism he characterizes that in that phrase, and I thought that that phrase best capture uh, characterizes um, the dynamic that I wanted to explore. How is it that the friends of black people could basically be complacent to the to the spread and the deepening policies of of Jim Crow in the north and in the south? Uh, and white supremacy in particular in the South. How could they be complacent to that um, after they had sacrificed so much uh, during the Civil War? Uh, one, one additional thing in the year that the, the monument was dedicated, this is 1876. That was also the year of a presidential election in which, um, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican candidate ran against the democratic candidate, Samuel Tilden, who was governor of New York and, um, in the electoral college, both candidates had the same number of votes. It was a tie. Um, Rutherford B. Hayes was a- able to get the majority by persuading Southern Democrats to vote against their own candidate and to support him, a Republican. And he said that if you support me, I w- the first act I will do once elected president is to remove the troops from the South and therefore hand over complete control of, of Southern race relations to you. Um, he was given those votes. He was true to his word to the Southern Democrats. He removed the South, um, I'm sorry, the federal troops from the South. And it just, and and that act basically ended reconstruction. But at the same time, it also gave a green light to white supremacists to step up um, its campaign of terror against the African-American. And all of this is happening while Republicans control both the House, the Senate,
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty
1: percent off. Hmm. So I think
2: I think the children of Lincoln kind of characterizes that whole thing.
1: Sure. Uh, so let's talk about the the other two uh, whites or children of Lincoln or friends of blacks, as you call them, uh, in this book. Uh, I believe Sarah um, Sarah Berger Stearns and uh, Daniel D Merrill. Can you tell us? a little bit about about them and why you use them in this book
2: sure um sarah Berger Stearns uh was was a fascinating person i mean they're they're all fascinating but she especially was i wanted to have um a a, a woman activist um i wanted to hear her voice in this story and um, I found her voice through the strangest way. I, I, was, I, I, I happened to pull up a copy of the Rochester Post, which was a newspaper published in Rochester in 1866. Um, it was a two page newspaper, but it was the only paper coming out of Rochester at that time. And I found on the second page uh, in a very, very small box, uh less than an inch um an article about incest uh in the next issue i found an article about you know in the same size article i found a a piece written on on rape and on childbirth and on other topics That you don't normally associate with newspapers during the Victorian age, you know, during that time, mid 19th century, uh, let alone in outstate Minnesota. You just don't associate. Um, uh, newspapers of that time covering something as delicate and as indiscreet as as rape and <laughs> and um, you know, spousal abuse and murder you don't you don't read stories like that so I wanted to know who was writing these stories and um, I learned that it was it was Sarah Berger Stearns who at the time was living in Rochester she had come from Michigan. Um she she wanted to, at 16, to enter the University of Michigan uh, uh, for study, and she was denied entrance, uh, as you can imagine, uh, on the basis of her gender. Um, but un, you know, what, what made her unique in my mind was not that she would have the audacity to enroll or seek to enroll, but that in, in the face of her rejection, she sued the University of Michigan. Uh, on the basis of discrimination. This is a sixteen-year-old girl, you know, in the eighteen fifties. Um, she married Ozora uh, Stearns, who was also an officer. He's a white guy. He was, he was a he was an officer in the uh, colored regiment. And in eighteen sixty-six, they 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 moved to Rochester, Minnesota, where Ozora uh, would soon become county attorney. Um, and Stearns began her career as a journalist. Um, so you, you think of a person on the frontier, you know, at this time there is no Highway 35. Uh, she, she is isolated uh, many months a year uh, in in this, this 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 one horse town, I guess is what, what people would call it, uh Rochester, Minnesota. And from there, she began to write about women's rights. And in particular, she uh, was was becoming increasingly critical of the Republicans um, who refused to include women's suffrage while they campaigned for Black suffrage. Um, she supported the, the ratification of the 13th Amendment and reluctantly supported the 14th Amendment but had had w- became more militant uh, when she saw the re- the reluctance on the part. No, I should say the resistance on the part of the party leadership, and removing the word male from the proposal of the Fourteenth Amendment and later the Fifteenth Amendment, that would therefore exclude women from citizenship at that time and from voting rights in the Fifteenth Amendment. So She became much more vocal in her frustration of a party elite, and her frustration began to take the form of criticizing white men who were more willing to give the vote to black men, many of whom could not vote, some of whom could be accused of being abusive of their wives, while not giving the right to vote to their own wives, their own daughters, their, own, their mothers, their, 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 their aunts uh, or sisters, uh, she felt that that was rank hypocrisy. And so as she began to increasingly attack the Republican leadership, she also began to take shots at um, the wretched nature of African-American men. Uh, so you have this rather unfortunate situation Where a political liberal and a supporter of Lincoln and a supporter of emancipation uh, through her frustration at uh, not being able to get support for women's suffrage becoming much more critical of, of black men who were being placed above her. In effect, even though they were not as educated as she was, this was, this was the nature of her frustration. And it was a frustration that was mirrored by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton as well mm-hmm. uh, at about the same time. So you have this paradox where they're beginning to embrace um, the, 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 the racism of, of, of Democrats uh, who had been their, their enemies not too long before. Um, this sort of unholy—I um, don't know if "unholy" is the proper, is the appropriate term—but it was an unfortunate alliance that uh, many of the suffragists during this time felt they needed to form in order to have a political base, because their own former allies in the Republican leadership uh, had rejected their their call for women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that was another example of at least, um, uh, you know, another class that would be considered uh, Lincoln Republicans. Uh, uh, Susan B. Anthony in particular, Elizabeth Cady Stanton were uh, basically declaring war in effect uh, against African-Americans when they were, when they were confronted with um, their white allies. I'm sorry, their, their, their abolitionists and Republican allies, white males, who were saying this was the Negro hour. And the relationship that she, Susan B. Anthony, had with Frederick Douglass would forever be uh, tense for the remainder of the 19th century, it would forever be tense, because the, the things that they said about each other would not permit the relationship to heal. Well, that is, in effect, mirrored in in, in Sarah Berger Stearns. Uh, for the remainder of the 1860s, as her campaign to increase the, 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 the support for women's suffrage uh, began to spread, um, you began to see uh, a more class-oriented situation where professional women, middle-class white women were were drawn to to the suffrage movement. African-American women were excluded from it and um, black men came to view um, her work as a source of hostility. Uh, because oftentimes Sarah Berger Stearns would use articles illustrating why black men could never be equal to, to white women. Um, they would use She would use articles mirroring, um, or she would, she would print articles that appeared in the democratic newspaper of black men raping white women. Uh, So you have this liberal. Uh, basically, uh, adopting uh, a much more critical view of, of black men, uh, out of the frustration of being betrayed by her her uh, her, al- her once one-time allies, um, I think that that's another example of how um, the, the 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 liberals and the uh, the political liberals in the in the second half of the 19th century began to shift their attention away from the welfare of African Americans. Mm-hmm. How former friends ceased to become friends,
1: do you think Stearns then did support black suffrage and black rights, or was she only interested in in women 's suffrage and women 's rights
2: oh I, I I think she was uh initially quite supportive of of black rights i mean they she like like other suffragists uh, of her camp um you know, saw it as an issue of universal suffrage. You know, they, they used the phrase universal suffrage, that this was not just a thing of black suffrage and women's suffrage, but all adults, you know, all citizens should have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should not be distinguished by, by gender. Um, But when um, her former friends in the Republican Party said this was the Negro hour and in Minnesota, especially when her former friends, many of whom who were friends of her husband and political allies of her husband, uh, used the most vile language to condemn and to vilify women suffrage suffragists. Um, she began to become equally angry with, with the, 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 the white males who led the party um, and, and began to see this as, as something that you, know, you, you can't rely on the Republican Party to, to bring. So whereas before they were in favor of universal suffrage, she began to see how, how race was the excuse that the established party used to keep women in their place. And so she became, her her, her sentiment, her rhetoric, uh, began to reflect that 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 frustration uh, that race was being used against her. If race can be a tool to put me down, then I will become contemptuous of that tool, seemed to be where she, where she was, or her, her attitude of the day.
1: So who then was Daniel D. Merrill, and what role did he play in all of this? Daniel
2: Merrill was uh I consider him the man in the shadows. Uh he's he's interesting in a different way. He was a Republican. Uh when he moved here from from Michigan, he settled in St. Paul. He was one of the um one of the uh original I shouldn't say original, but he was one of the earliest members of First Baptist Church in St. Paul, which was a church where a lot of the party, I'm sorry, where a lot of the the community leadership uh, attended. Um, He had access to... Uh, a lot of powerful people in St. Paul. He was a Republican and he did campaign for Lincoln. In a, in a democratic city, he was, he was also a businessman who was very practical. St. Paul was, was a democratic stronghold. And in order for him to be a successful businessman, he had to be able to negotiate the rapids of politics, partisan politics. And in his case, that meant that he was going to minimize his Republican identity in order to establish the type of rapport he needed with the political Democrat uh, uh, power elite of the city, both in terms of business and in terms of politics, so he he tended to, um, as he became more polit- more 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 successful in the business sense, um, he became less outwardly Republican in the political sense. Uh, he wanted to get along with people. He wanted to, you know, uh, advance his own interests. In 1865, 66, 67, he began to work with uh, Robert Hickman, who was a um, former slave of Missouri, who left Missouri in 63, moved to St. Paul, and he wanted to start a church. Uh, and because he identified with the Baptist church, uh, he was he was he was encouraged to approach the first Baptist church, Saint Paul's, the white church, in an effort to try to ask for help for, from them to get his church started. And Merrill was the person who the deacons of the church. Um, assigned, in fact, to work with Hickman, uh, Merrill knew who the bankers were. He knew how who the political people were. He understood how to to to, to move an agenda forward of this nature. Um, he negotiated land deals uh, in behalf of the church. Um, the The interesting thing about this was was not just his support. But he also embodied the interest of the denomination of the Baptist Association, which, um, uh, you know, requires the, the the minister to be approved by the congregation. But then they have to be approved by the association in order for them to be ordained. So you had in, in, in Robert Hickman, the black man, a situation where as a slave, he could preach to his flock. But now in Minnesota, as a free man, he could not preach to his flock because he was not ordained. And so for the longest time, Hickman uh, kind of followed the lead of Merrill in order to ingratiate himself with the the, the White Baptist Association. Now, Merrill was able to get the church going. He was able to get the structure uh, built. He was able to get the tools for it. He was able to get the funding for it, but he also did little to help Hickman become the minister of the church. So you have the situation where the black congregation did not have its choice to lead them. Mm -hmm. Um, The person who would become the pastor of the church would be none other than the father-in-law of Merrill, who was looking for a job. So Merrill put his own father-in-law In this black church, his father in law is a Scottish immigrant, uh, had no experience with African Americans, had no experience with the the emotional, uh, the emotionalistic kind of form of religious expression that African Americans of this group uh, displayed um but he needed a church and so he was placed in charge and for the most part you know the uh, reverend talbert who was the, the 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 minister would remain in charge of the church um i see that as an example not so much you know the appointment of 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 his father-in-law that's that's a manifestation of a deeper thing the more important uh, element that comes from this, this particular case study is the fact that um, Hickman could not have a conversation with Merrill. Hickman could not express his frustration because Hickman was worried that Merrill would see Hickman as being ungrateful for all that, Hick- all that Merrill had done for him. And this was a common theme among the, 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 the children of Lincoln and their black friends. Um, the, they, 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 they could call each other friends, but that, that word should be encased in quotation marks, that there was no equity between the two people. Seldom were children of Lincoln, the white children of Lincoln in a position where they actually had blacks who were their friends. They didn't even really know uh, blacks on a personal level, but they had this sort of sense of blacks as an abstract. Black people were an abstraction. They were the slaves who had been freed. They were this 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 this, this freedman on the on the statue that would be commemorated years later in 1876. Um, but in that situation, blacks could never really be candid with their white patrons. Can, blacks were, were were constrained from not only being appeared to be ungrateful, but um, Uh, they they were constrained by the concern of not wanting to alienate patrons who could abandon them, in which case they would have nothing. Uh, And so blacks basically learned to live uh, quietly in a parallel world. Uh, And then, in essence, is what my book is about, is exploring uh, the nuanced relationships between uh, one class of Minnesotans who had a right to feel like they had done you know noble deeds they had done noble deeds, mm-hmm. but that they they rested on those laurels um, as as a way of avoiding um, forming the kind of relationship that would allow them to be challenged you know by by people who they now said were equal to them um so that that's basically i mean his narrow story i think illustrates that um stearns gives another example of that um montgomery's relationship with african americans is another form of paternalism
0: uh
2: and so on and so forth these are four different people who don't really know each other um but they are very similar in their, in their backgrounds. They're very similar in, uh, what, in their attitude towards African-Americans, even though they come to African-Americans from different avenues.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think you give a, a good summary there. Um, you mentioned in your epilogue that none of these four, um, white, uh, children of Lincoln were at the unveiling of the statue in 1876. So, uh, what did that represent as far as this book goes?
2: Well, I, I think it, it represents the, um, the, the, the just how far removed they had they had grown from the original reason for their their crusade in in in, in the Civil War. Um, they, they, you know, it was, it was, it was a noble effort that they engaged in to, first of all, keep the union together, and then to free all men. And then after that, in Minnesota's case, to, it was across the the North, um, to, to, to make African Americans, um, you know, politically equal to white people. This is something that no one really expected the war would be about uh, at the beginning of the war. Um, so it was, it was an amazing thing that they, they were able to achieve. But within a few short years, each one of them uh, came to feel a little uh, skeptical about uh, whether there should be more done to even symbolize um Concern for the African American um, there, there, in the case of Wilkinson, for example, he became quite critical of the Republican Party for being a party of corruption uh, and using the the, the the violence in the South between the Klan and Republic white Republicans and black Republicans. He he, he blamed the Republican Party for foaming that that frustration by virtue of having an occupying force in the South. You're basically exacerbating tensions between the two regions and you're doing it cynically. He accused the Republicans of basically fanning the flames of of sectional uh, violence as a way of keeping voters distracted. From the the, the failings of the party to meet the needs of of, of northern voters, um, the the bloody shirt, in other words, became the term that was commonly used against the Republican Party. The bloody shirt was like the muleta that you see the matador use to to misdirect bull.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, in this case, the bull were the voters. Uh, we will distract them from the economic policies that are failing. We'll distract them from the social tensions that are increasing. We'll distract them from the, the the concentration of wealth. We'll distract them by reminding them of what the Klan is doing in the South. We won't. We don't want to be held accountable for our failed policy. This seems to be where where people like Wilkinson and other other people like him were feeling towards the Republican Party. And so any discussion about 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 civil rights any discussion about uh, the welfare of blacks was viewed you know the black black social uh, political welfare was basically and social welfare was viewed as a strand with a fiber in that bloody shirt. You know, it was it was it was it was just one of the things meant to distract white voters from what uh, what the real problems were with the party in power. Uh, and so, you know, going to the memorial in effect would have been giving tribute to a party that had lost its lost its moorings, lost its virtue. I think this is where a number of the Lincoln Republicans that I looked at um, were coming from. Uh, and uh, it, it got the, the, the commemoration of that monument got very little coverage uh, in the in the Republican newspapers in Minnesota. And and none of the people who I mentioned uh, uttered a word about it. Uh, it just was irrelevant. They were they, they had they, within a short period of time, they had become that contemptuous hmm. of. Of the of the issues that that had compelled them uh, just 10 years before.
1: That's really very interesting. Um, I'm really quite fascinated with with the whole book itself and how you' you're able to sort of sift through the the political context and, and that of reconstruction and the Civil War um, and, and many different things going on at that time. I wonder what parallels there are to t- today. Um, in our fight for equal rights and equal opportunity. Um, how does this book resonate uh, with what's going on in society today?
2: Well, I, I'll tell you, Colin, I, I think that fundamentally this book illustrates um, what happens when um, people who, who rely on their laurels a lose sight of the purpose for those laurels, you know, when they become, uh, when they become uh, complacent to past good deeds to having committed past good deeds, that's the first step to seeing those good deeds began to erode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in, in, you know, the, the past several years, looking at the political situation of America today, um, you know, when, when you look at the election, of of eight uh, of 2016, I think there are a lot of people who had supported, um, you know, the policies at least of President Obama and and the Democratic Party, and who may consider themselves independents but supportive of of liberal measures or mo- at least moderate measures. Um, there was a sense that after Obama, you know, uh, there there you know. Because things will not be the same or because they're upset with certain, certain you know, the stakes re- fell. They, they, they were not as significant. Um, that there was a disbelief that there could be any sort of, of retrenchment because what we achieved during those, those, those previous twelve uh, eight years uh, could never be reversed. And I think that uh, as a result, you know, people woke up. Uh, over the past two years, um, shocked at how much um, has been rolled back uh, and how easily, relatively speaking, it happened. Um, so I think that I think that you know the lesson that I take from 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 this book, uh, as it relates to today, is that you know one can never be complacent to one's successes. That no matter how noble you know the, the the crusade is that you led or uh, participated in, uh, even if you have won, um, you know the fruits of victory you know can decay very easily, and oftentimes right in front of your eyes you know if you're distracted, if you're looking elsewhere, and I feel that 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 that's that's something that we we are are beginning to recognize today. Um you know I think that if you look at such things as as universal health care um, you know it wasn 't until it was threatened that people began to recognize how significant that is to the quality of our society and you can you can come up with any number of other issues um, that we 're seeing being rolled back now um, two years ago we didn 't think that that was going to happen you know we thought that 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 was secure but Anything can roll back once you begin to take the foot off the gas once you begin to feel that you know we've done our part <laughs> sure. you know? um, so I, I think that's really the moral of the book itself um, that good deeds have to be reinforced continuously that that has to be a constant priority of society to perpetuate that it always has to be about the quality. Uh, of the welfare of all of our citizens that always has to be preeminent you know you can't be distracted from uh whatever you you can't begin to so anyway that's that's what I think the book is about for the most part and it's the reason why I wrote it
1: well I'm glad you did and I I think that's very true and very well stated um I know you just released this book uh, in the last month or two so I'm sure you're promoting it at the moment but uh, what else are you working on
2: well, um, I, I have uh, a couple other projects, one dealing with uh, the origins of political liberalism in Minnesota, which, which in a sense begins in 1847 and goes up to 1860. But in looking at some of the people um, uh, who would become the political liberals of the state and basically define political liberalism for the state, um, I, I go back even further to the really the beginning of the of the century where, where their lives began to kind of get a sense of why in Minnesota? Why isn't Wisconsin, for example, or Illinois or or why why isn't why aren't other northern states um why 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 do they not have the the, the reputation of political exceptionalism that we have? And and this book attempts to examine why, what it is about Minnesota, where that could happen, why it happened. Um, The other book that I'm I'm working on, and actually it's the one that um, has my heart at this moment, is a biography of Nellie Francis, um, African-American woman, St. Paul, who uh, she lived from 1870 to about 1960, um she was very active african-american woman was very active in just about every single civil, civil rights issue that occurred nationally as well as locally um she participated in one of the leaders of the women's suffrage movement uh in minnesota uh was was uh was a lieutenant of clara Eulin, who was the who was kind of a leader of the women's suffrage movement and within a week or so after The certificate of ratification for the 19th Amendment was signed by Governor Bernquist. In Duluth, three black men were lynched, and she basically wrote the legislation that would later be uh, approved by the legislature in, in 1920. She wrote the legislation that made lynching a crime. She was an exceptional person. No one knows anything about her, and um, she's been sort of the the, the the focus of my attention for the past uh, <laughs> year or so. So I'm kind of working on two books at the same time.
1: And you've got uh, plenty to keep you busy. Plenty to keep me busy. That's right.
2: <laughs>
1: that are my students. Sure. So uh, for readers, uh, where can they find your book, and where can they find more information about you and, and your work?
2: Uh, well, the, the book is published by the University of Minnesota Press, and uh, I believe it's Amazon, um, but the press is a good place to begin. Uh, I believe there are copies over at the Historical Society as well. And um, so, you know, that, that, that as far as I know is how to, uh, this is really bad promotion, I suppose, but uh, <laughs> you, you can start with Amazon and University of Minnesota Press to, to find the books. Sure.
1: So. Well, I've been speaking with Dr. William Green. He's the author of The Children of Lincoln White Paternalism and the Limits of Black Opportunity in Minnesota, 1860 to 1876. Dr. Green, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed meeting with you and talking about
1: this book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.